Hello, everybody. My name is John Murphy. Welcome to On the Homefront today. You might be listening to us live on WILI AM 1400 right now or on the digital FM at 95.3. We also record our shows for YouTube, where WILI has a YouTube channel with many of our shows. So if you miss our live broadcast, you can always catch the conversations and get the information anytime through YouTube. And we also air the programs on WECS, the Eastern Public Radio Station. So today our program is in three parts. Uh, we're going to focus on the Molten Lava Gallery. They have a special art show coming up this weekend. We'll get to that later in the show. We also have a unique digital history project connecting the history department at Eastern with the historians in the Willimantic area, connecting digital history archives, looking at life in Willimantic in 1910. And it involves students and faculty working together. They'll be our second guest today. It's called Digital Wyndham, and it launches officially tomorrow on May 4th. And I'm very honored to open the show today with President Elsa Nunez from the Eastern Connecticut State University. It's wonderful to have you in the studio, Elsa. Thanks oh, for being John, here. Oh, John, thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. It thank is you. always a pleasure. Quite a few over the years. <laughs> so we have some time, and we'll try to get through as much as we can. But we want to give uh, Dr. Nunez time to give some answers and kind of give you more context. We're in the middle of the budget session, so all the budgetary things are in flux right now. There's nothing really settled. But I thought one thing that uh, President Nunez could do is to kind of frame our budget at Eastern with the larger system, which is going through changes of priorities, community colleges, how the CSU system works. And I know they're looking at kind of redesigning a lot of long-standing relationships. Mm -hmm. So can you give us a little crystallized view of how things are in this year? Yes, John. I appreciate the question because it's been in the news. You know, people are, you know, talking about it, debating the budget, and there's many perspectives. But let's start off with Eastern's budget. Eighteen years I've been president, right. and we've had a balanced budget every single year. And that's a wonderful tribute to the community, the faculties and staff, my administrators who always, you know, everybody's on the frugal side. We don't spend what we don't have. So this community should be very proud of that. So the system is composed of 17 what I call units, 12 community colleges, four state universities, and you know that Southern, Central, Western, and Eastern, and one uh, online entity called Charter Oak. That's right. Each of us has our own budgets. The story is that not each of these units is has had a balanced budget. So that's what you're reading about in the media, for example, reading about and hearing about it in the media. And that is that Western and Southern are having challenges with their budgets. And that, uh, to be quite honest, never happens one for one year. It's over time that sure. you slip, 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 spend, 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 and then here, here you are with some budget challenges. Eastern as small as it is, has about $33 million in reserves. And that's what you and I would put away in our savings account in case the furnace broke at home or right. the roof needed fixing. So I've done the same thing. If there's a tornado in Willimantic, if there's flooding and I have to repair something, I've got that money set aside so that it doesn't interfere with the student's education. So now what has happened is that over time, the, the um, governor and the Office of uh, Policy and Management have given um, uh, uh, resources to, of course, to the workforce. And that, I mean, in terms of raises. And those raises are, people are entitled to them. They've worked very hard. You mean the state employee system. The state employee okay. system. Right. But when they negotiate those increases, we then get the bill at Eastern. We don't negotiate what Eastern's faculty or staff are going to get 
the, the governor's office and the uh, OPM negotiates that, and then we're sent the bill. So those incremental costs, like inflation, mm-hmm. uh, wage increases, um, uh, uh, things that um, we have no control over, energy for example, costs energy costs yeah. skyrocketing and sure. other costs skyrocketing. Goods are now you know at a prime and they're scarce. So all of those costs, if you add it up, are 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 difficult to cover if unless you get an increase in the budget and that's where we are today so the the audience has heard that the legislature is debating whether to lift the spending cap connecticut has a spending cap and the governor's position which i respect is we're not going to lift the spending cap however there are organizations in willimantic that are nonprofits like horizons and others which have asked for increases for example, they've asked for a 7% increase in their budget, and they've gotten a 1% increase uh, in their budget, the proposed 1% increase. And they're saying, no, we want 7 or 8 so we can give our workers increases. And so what has happened is for nonprofits and for higher education, we're not getting the increases that we think we need in order to balance future budgets. So for next year... I think I can manage it, but for the following year, 25, the shortfall is about $17 million for Eastern, right. and that's huge, and that's right now why we're trying to get everybody's attention and say, please, stop, you know, look at these numbers. This isn't that Eastern has spent money needlessly or that we're not right. well managed. We've had a balanced budget, as I said, every year. We have reserves, and we will use some of those reserves for, for next will. year and yeah. for the next year. Uh, year to follow. So what I say is, please don't let force us to cut services to students. The students deserve the shuttle bus. They deserve tutoring. They deserve supplemental instruction. They deserve good facilities that are clean and accessible to people with disabilities. So we can't do that if the budget isn't at the level that it should be. And so I want to take this opportunity to thank all the taxpayers because you realize that a fancy liberal arts college today, a private one, cost about $82,000 a year. Eastern All In is about 27000 and change. That's with room and board and tuition. That's, that's a, a wonderful price point, and that's because taxpayers, we get money from the state through the taxes that you pay and that you and I pay. And I want to thank all the taxpayers because I think in this world where we want a great democracy, you have to have access to higher education for everybody, not just the privileged people born into fancy families. No. If your mother cleans toilets, you should be able to go to college and get a first-class education. And that's really what Eastern's about. It's a public university, and we're very proud of the public and it's a liberal arts university which is public and that's a rarity to have a public liberal arts college in in a state now you know there's one more aspect of the budget thing that's in the papers that people will debate and it's confusing is the surplus versus the spending cap yes because the cap has come and gone over the years it's been adjusted but they have it set now and the debate is we do have an existing surplus that some people say we should always save for a rainy day. Some say, well, we should use some of it now because some of these unmet needs that uh, uh, Elsa was talking about are sitting there on the table. 
So there's a tension for yeah, that. Yeah, there's a tension. And there's, you know, there you can make the argument either way. Don't You know, we do that at home, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. we're not going to buy that because that's not a necessity. That's a luxury. Right, and we, right. we look at our lists of things. And, and that's what's happening. People are saying, no, we don't want to use the, the surplus now. We just want to put it away for a, a, a situation where Connecticut would, would need it. But, but on the other hand, you say, okay, so if you don't do deferred if you don't take a, uh, pay attention to deferred maintenance at Eastern, and I'll speak to Eastern alone because that's what I know best. All right, so now we've got buckets in the hallways because the ceiling is dripping because the roof is broken and we haven't fixed it. Then you've got, you know, deterioration in the, in the structure of the building because there's water damage all through the building. Then you've got um, concrete breaking, which is dangerous. Then you've got electrical that needs to be fixed and on and on and on. So these things, even though you shouldn't, you may not want to spend your little extra money, you're going to have to. You're going to have to, or otherwise you're going to have a, a, a university that the taxpayer is going to say, I don't want my son or daughter or grandson or grandson going there. It's a dump, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, over time, and people have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. Infrastructure is infrastructure. It's costly. Now, something else, you know, there's been so much research on across the country, New England has a disproportionate number of schools, a large number of colleges. And as you know, the demographics, the numbers are going down, although there are historic cycles. But when the number of students is down with many, many schools, this is a stress everywhere, private, public. Uh, so when you try to plan ahead and anticipate the changing numbers, mm -hmm. how do you anticipate core needs that you know have to be met all the time? And then what areas may have to be deferred or wait until you have more demonstrated need to justify the resources when you want to do it that way? Yeah, that's such a good question. My philosophy and my uh, uh, chief financial officer, uh, Jim Howarth, who's been a phenomenal colleague, and uh, he is so, so he's been with me for 12 years and he knows the budget inside out and works with me on all these numbers. We are very conservative. And I use that word meaning conservative. So when we project for next year, instead of saying, oh, we're going to have more students than we need and we're going to have thousands coming, we don't do that. We say, what's the, what's the minimum that we think we're going to have? And we base it on that, the budget on that lower number. And then if we get extra students, that's gravy. You know, right. and then we, we have that money and we can spend it on, on different things. But it's conservative budgeting that has helped us through the years, as I said, get, get to a place where we have a balanced budget. I think people often stretch. And, and so when they're doing their projections, they say, well, we're going to get money from here, money from there. And those are wish lists. They're not solid. And when you build a budget on soft ground, it's going to be a soft budget. By the way, if you're listening to us on the radio right now, we're having a conversation today with Eastern President Elsa Nunez, and we're covering the budget and other things at Eastern. One thing you and I were talking about before that I want to include is, as you look at higher education with all the schools, the whole idea of liberal arts is not as common as you might think. There is a huge focus on technology, and people are looking at industrial growth and all the, all the benefits of technology. So you have lots of STEM, but there's also something called STEAM, which integrates the arts and humanities in technology about what is it for, who is it serving. So I guess my broad question is, when you look at the horizon of the very obvious need for technological growth, and all of our social issues are showing that we have a real issue of values mm -hmm. and purposes and accountabilities, 
How do you integrate that in a liberal arts program that includes like health sciences, a new nursing program, lots mm -hmm. of hard science, mm -hmm. but the application side, yeah. not just the theory? Yeah. Well, you have, I think, the, the, those of you who remember the GI Bill, when we said uh, these mostly men have fought for our country, let them get uh, discounted higher education. For the most part, it was free. And what a wonderful thing that was for those, those men coming home. And uh, they, they benefited from that. And in those days, higher education, a college education, was a public good. People believed that you got a college education and then you went out and you did some good in the world. So taxpayers said, I'll pay for that because all these people are going to do good in the world. And that's flipped. Today, the public doesn't see higher education as a public good. They see it as a, an individual good. It's good for you, John. It's good for Elsa. But I'm not so sure it's good for the public. And so you, if you go back in time, Harvard College was the first liberal arts college created in the country. And white men went to Harvard College. And what did they study? They studied music philosophy, mathematics, religion, and those are what we call in Latin artes liberales, the liberal arts. The word liberal today, people think it's political. It's not, right. has nothing to do right. with politics. Liberal arts has to do with the arts. And so the Harvard men graduated and they knew each other. So they had a circle of men that they knew that were doctors, lawyers, financiers. Yeah. And so they had a leg up in society. No, no private liberal, there were not enough uh, private liberal colleges to really go around in this country because they're small and they take yes. in few students. And so public liberal arts colleges were created and Eastern is a public liberal arts college. There's only one in the state of Connecticut and all states that have them only have one and we're proud to have that designation. So when I go to the accounting banquet, I say to my students, we don't graduate accountants at Eastern. And that people look at me funny. And then I say, we graduate liberally educated people who happen to be accountants. And they stomp their feet. They're so happy. I said, because you can talk about the conflict in the Middle East, the role of religion in this country, the climate actions that we should be taking to cut back on the climate you know, uh, issues that we're dealing with. And this education of the liberal arts is an intellectual education that gets you to think critically and to sit, think systematically and to argue uh, with both sides, you know, one on the left, one on the right, but I don't mean politically. I just mean the weight of both, uh, listening to other people's opinions, speaking clearly, understanding fact from fiction and under, using facts in your argumentation. All of that is, is critical in a liberal arts education. If you take all that and, and you give that to a person who wants to be an accountant, they're a different person yep. because it's not just about the tech you know, the technical point of being an accountant, that's great that they know that, but they're, they're citizens of a democracy. So they can do other things in our society. They can participate in other ways. The same thing with people in technology. Yes, it's wonderful that you know every software available and, and you know the technology uh, uh, behind the, or the hardware behind um, systems. That's all interesting, but that's not what makes you a whole person. You're gonna have to vote. You're going to have to um, think critically about issues in our society. You're going to have a family, and you want to think critically about the education of your children, right. about right. the role of your church if you go to church, or the role of the uh, the, the religious 
uh, affiliation you have in your community, uh, the, the issues that are complicated like homelessness right now, uh, issues of climate, all of those things take people who are intellectually developed to discuss them and debate them in a fair an even-handed way. And I think that's why I always argue, of course you can be a technician. Of course you you should major in in those things. Those are important. We need those those jobs and those careers. But why can't a person have both? And you can have both in a liberal education. And that's what we give at Eastern. And I think if you ask our students, they can articulate very clearly what being liberally educated means to them. I think they see themselves as more complex thinkers in many ways. Well, the world has changed so much, and unlike 20 years ago, they have more information available to do their own research, to check out their own information on their own. So that gives them more power at every level of inquiry, right? Yeah, but they've got to sort through that information. Yeah, that's right. And so you have to know what's fact and what's fiction, and you have to be able to discern that. Now, we have about 10 minutes to go, and one thing I want to do is shift our gears slightly to make use of our time and to talk to parents out there or folks in high school who are thinking about colleges maybe one or two years down the line because the whole environment is shifting as we've been talking financially, what courses are being offered where. This is all kind of being realigned right now. So maybe some advice for parents who are looking ahead to this space and they want to be smart and plan ahead and not do it last minute. Yeah. Well, at Eastern, you can come as a commuter if you're local. You know, we still have many commuter students, and that's an option. But we do have the majority of the students living on campus. And we want the students to have a full, just a full college experience. That's not just the academic, but the social. It's very important for issues of mental health, that they participate in things that they grow and that they make friendships and that they establish uh, relationships with people that they trust and respect. So it's not always your mother and father that you can talk to. So they're they're having these relationships on campus with uh, other students, sometimes with faculty or staff, are critical to the the college education. And so what we have at Eastern is a full array of support services for students. You know, you can get tutoring, you can get supplemental instruction. Supplemental instruction is when they reteach the course, when the faculty member may be a little bit too strict or too, you know, not communicating as clearly as the students would like. We reteach the material to the student. Um, We also have um, six uh, mental health professionals uh, psychological counselors there. So if there are issues, and you know for this generation there are sometimes issues that they, they need to work through, we have that support service. We have a fantastic array. I think it's 110 clubs and organizations. Some of them are religious, some of them are academic, like the political science club. The math some club. of them are the math club. Some of them are social, like the dance troupe. Uh, some of them are more um, giving in the community, like Best Buddies, in which they help people with developmental disabilities. But among those hundred clubs and organizations, a student connects to people, and they connect to people with their values and their interests. And so over time, for four years, you're hanging out with these folks, you're going to class, and you're having a full experience that's social psychologically and academically sound. And we believe that you have to educate the full student. It's not just about what happens in the classroom. You know we're ranked in US News and World Report. We're number one in New England 
in in the uh, U.S. News and World Report, they break up the country into four quadrants, mm-hmm. and the north goes from Maryland all the way up to Canada across to Pennsylvania. And you know how saturated that is, John, Love with you. colleges and universities. We rank number 16 among the publics. So, you know, parents have to listen to that. That means you're going to get a quality education for a very good price point. Now, maybe there's one last question I want to ask, and that's a real delicate one because it can become politically critical for some people. But I have to have full disclosure. I've been a part-time teacher at Eastern 40 years. This is my 40th year because I love teaching there, and I love the program and the liberal arts aspect of my media teaching. But the reason why I bring it up is that since 40 years, I've seen incredible changes in students coming into school. You've had 18 years at the helm at Eastern at a much higher level of much more students. And I've seen them coming in more stressed and sometimes less capable than they used to be. So what I'm trying to delicately do to to not criticize local high schools is sometimes parents and voters don't like to fund local high schools. Local education is often a debate. And what happens when you don't support your local high schools, when they graduate and they come to Eastern, Eastern has to help them catch up. And that's a lot of work to it's help people so when they graduate, they're still ready to go. But some of that is energy that could be used elsewhere. Yeah. So I'm not trying to criticize schools, but letting parents know, look, you've got to support your school budgets. They need to do the job so that when they get to Eastern, they can maximize. Yeah. You know, you I'm trying to, to put it the right way. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point, John. And you have to monitor the achievement gap. Is there an achievement gap? In, um, is your son or daughter um, not doing as well in mathematics as they should or in English, whatever it is? Because if you get after that and close that achievement gap while they're in high school, they're going to do much better in college. If they graduate with that achievement gap when they get to college, you know they're going to be D and C students because – They've got such a far reach because it's hard. College is demanding. And so I think you're right that uh, you don't want to blame the schools. No, I think the schools, the teachers are fabulous. I think the schools, you know, often don't have the right resources. And so to your point, we should support the local schools in whatever way we can. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, maybe since... We could close on a nice optimistic note. 18 I years would like that. <laughs> well, you know, because you go back to the session and there's still a lot of clouds in the sky. Yeah. Uh, but when you look at 18 years of service, what is the thing that surprised you? That when you got here, you had a vision, you thought, well, here's what I'm going to get into. And now you've had 18 years of living in our region. What is one of the nicest surprises for you that well, you didn't expect? Well, I taught English. I was a professor of English before I became president. And, and I knew this in the classroom because I always l- learned from my students. But I had no idea, no idea how inspirational the students would be in my life. And that, that I, I'll cherish that till the day I die. They are so smart and so committed to issues of climate right now and equity and social justice. And they believe passionately. And, you know, people poo-poo this generation and say, oh, you know, let they don't do this, they don't do that. I don't do that. I find them very... For the things that they believe in, they are very motivated, and they have been a source of inspiration for me. Much of the work I have done has been difficult, but I must tell you, when I focus on the students and their inspiration, it makes it much easier. And so I, I, I have to thank them for that. Okay. 
Well, thank you for sharing some time with us as this year comes to a close. And we'll try to get you back at the end of the year to see how things came out after the session. Everything yeah. settles down. And as schools are retooling and readapting, we'll see how things are going. And if people in the audience pray, pray that I get my budget. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out within a month or so. <laughs> That's we'll know, right, right? Thank okay. you. Well, thank you again it's so much. It's a pleasure. Okay. So we'll take a short break and come right back and take a look at some other work that Easter is doing with local digital history. So stay with us. Okay, we're back live on the home front today. We're very happy to have you with us, whether it's on the radio or YouTube. We're glad to have you here. For the third part of the show coming up later, we're going to have a look at some local art activity at the Molten Lava Gallery. They're having a show this weekend. That'll be coming up a little bit later. But right now, we're going to continue our conversation with uh, the president of Eastern, uh, Elsa Nunez, looking at Digital History, a project that's been working for a few years. And they are launching tomorrow on May 4th with a website when you can really interact with the work of many people who have been trying to make history accessible and to relate it to our lives today. And we have two people very involved right now. To my right, I'm very happy to have Jamel Ostwald. He's a professor of history and chair of the department. So welcome to the program. It's great to have you here for your first visit. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good to have you here. And also we have an Eastern junior with us. She is a history and education major. Her name is Paula Hernandez. So welcome to the studio, Paula. Hi. Okay. So tomorrow's a big day for you. Maybe our starting point is to just mention what the website is, where people can find you, and talk about what's coming to life and how it connects to 1910. Sure. So uh, tomorrow we'll be doing actually our second uh, showcase, a digital window showcase, and uh, it's opening up a, a new phase, if you will, of the digital window project. Uh, we started this project maybe five years ago. Um, and really its intent was to, on the one hand, provide students with an opportunity to do local history, uh, to do public history, to do research in the archives, uh, but also to be able to present uh, those findings to the, the public more generally. What got you into history, first of all, out of all the subjects you could have chosen? What was it about history, and what kind of work have you been doing in the project? Well, for me, history was never an option as a major or in my future. For me, all it took was a good history professor at Eastern, Dr. Nomek. And ever since then, I've been really intrigued by history. And I knew that I wanted to have it as a major. And then later on, I figured out that I might as well be an education major because mm -hmm. it runs in my family. It does. Yeah. And they're very naturally allied in so many ways in your work areas, right? Yes, and that's something that I've continued to discover throughout this project in which I've been working on creating exhibits and expanding them. But um, in the beginning of this project, my contribution was to create an exhibit about transportation and the infrastructure of transportation in 1910. Wow. Yes. I know, because folks in, in current times don't know how this town was on a global map as a source of thread. People would come here. A president came here. This was a hot spot, although that was a while back. Uh, well, anyway, you chose 1910. So let's mm -hmm. take a minute. What do, you know? What is it about that year that made you want to use it as a landmark or as a signpost? Yeah. Um, on the one hand, 1910 was an average year. Uh, there, was, it wasn't World War One. It wasn't the Great Depression. Anything like that. Uh, but on the other hand, it it had two advantages. One, it was a transitional period. 
uh, especially as far as technology uh, is concerned, transportation technology, communication. Uh, it's also an era where you have uh, it's the progressive era, and so you have That's a number right. of kind of reformist movements in, in various fields. Oh, The Jungle was published, right? Right, right, you know, Upton okay. Sinclair in that era. Right. era. Uh, and also it, it had a very practical, uh, there was a very practical reason for why I did it, and that was because we actually had the documents. And so, for example, uh, a couple previous professors, history professors at Eastern, uh, Dr. Anya Kirchman and Emil Pocock, they had worked on a project to transcribe the 1910 census for Willimantic. So we have in an Excel spreadsheet the 10,800 people who were in Willimantic at the time and all of the information about them. We also have, through the Library of Congress, we have digital scans of the Sanborn fire insurance maps. And these were maps that thousands of them were created, and they literally mapped every building by building. So it was the combination of having those documents accessible that then kind of opened up the possibility of collecting data on it and being able to combine all sorts of different types of information about 1910. And so 1910 isn't unique in that regard, but it, it was a census year, and 1914 is the last Sanborn uh, maps that we have that have been digitized. So it was kind of a combination. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, Paula, just out of curiosity now, for other students who might be curious, when it gets to the actual work, did you scan documents? Did you collate information and analyze it? What kind of hands-on things did you do to make this uh, work um, as a functioning archive? A reason why I chose this course was because it's an alternative to a traditional um, reading and writing intensive history course in that um, I am an English language learner. Therefore, reading and writing can be challenging at times, especially mm. at a college level sure. and in a history class even more. Therefore, um, this um, course offered me the opportunity to um, do something a little different and learn new sets of skills and have more independence in what I do. Therefore, um, I got to scan pictures in the um, archives we have at the Connecticut Center for Studies up in Eastern in the library. Um, I also got to um, work in Excel in um, analyzing census data, which is really interesting. I never ever thought that I would be looking at people who lived 100 years ago. Yeah. So a lot of it was um, hands-on and everything that you see in the website, we had to put it ourselves, write it down, think about it very um, particularly what we wanted to portray in that. So mm -hmm. everything is very hands-on. Because when you rewrite history, that becomes new history. It's yeah, like, it's like know, a narrative. Whoever wins the war writes the history. At least that's the old rule, right, from before. So can you frame this in a larger picture of the state and its own history, how people are learning, how agriculture so, so much changed, how much a part of our history it was, or certain pockets of the state for industry, and how historians are really recreating the past? Sure. So first I should preface this by saying that I am not actually an American historian. Uh, I, I actually do early modern Europe. And one of the reasons when we started this project about five years ago, uh, I was the, the technical lead, as it were. So I know all the computer stuff. And Dr. Kirchman was the one who did kind of the content. Uh, that was her focus. And so we co-taught some courses together. Uh, and then she retired. And so I've kind of taken it over. And so really the, the focus for this new phase of Digital Wyndham has really been to kind of get a broad sense of uh, what was Willimantic like in all sorts of different aspects, right, in terms of transportation, education, social cultural groups, uh, things like that. And, and thus far, we've really been focusing mostly in on Willimantic. 
Um, that being said, as you mentioned already, Willimantic was, you know, uh, uh, a very important, you know, thread manufacturer for, for really from, I think, the American Civil War on. Right. Um, and there's, I think there's kind of a question as to when really we start to see that decline. Uh, but certainly by the time I think we get to the 1920s, you know, there, there's more and more competition from, you know, from factories that are, you know, that are opening up further south. Uh, and so I think, uh, I think by the time for 1910, Willimantic, it's kind of on the cusp in terms of it's still important, but I think it's starting to kind of lose some of that importance and some of that cachet. And so I, I get the sense that, that a few decades earlier maybe was really kind of the peak or the high point for Willimantic. Right. So use a little uh, crystal ball, and as you move into 2023, 2024, where is this collective effort moving forward after you launch and people get used to what you have? Your next steps. Sure. So uh, as I mentioned, this is really uh, kind of the foundation for this new phase. And really, uh, as they say, with any kind of digital project, 60 to 80 percent uh, of the work is getting started, is getting the tools, collecting the data, getting the data clean. And so honestly, uh, this couldn't have been done without the work of a bunch of different students, including Paula. And so we are really, in that sense, kind of at the beginning, where we now have, for example, a historically accurate map of the town. We have uh, the census information that's been cleaned. We have the city directory, kind of the phone book before most people had phones. Uh, we have the annual mayor reports. And so we kind of collected a lot of the data and we put it into kind of a data format, spreadsheets, if you will. And that then will allow future students to really kind of focus on particular aspects. Yeah. So, uh, so Paula was working, for example, on transportation. And, you know, she was, you know, looking, uh, we were using the maps and, and she was looking at, uh, you know, different types of sources. Uh, but really what we're going to be able to do in the future is we're going to have the data that will be really ready for the students. And in fact, some of the things that Paula and other students have been doing is actually transcribing the data and kind of getting it down into a spreadsheet where we can actually use it and, and, and analyze it in a more kind of, you know, data, data analytical sense in the future. Yeah. Well, this might be a hokey question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I got into history as a kid. I had some good teachers that really got me going. But sometimes people look at history as disconnected, as old. That's the way it was. It has no connection to today. So my question to you, and maybe for you, Paula, since you, uh, you had a, like a moment of excitement when you discovered history and it really got you going, right? So my question is, what do people today connect to the past and what can they learn uh, to be better at what we're doing and to not just say, well, that was then, this is now, because that's really lazy thinking, in my humble opinion. For me, something that I've learned throughout my time in college, contrary to what many other people may be experiencing in their college years, is that I'm learning a lot to value um, tradition and, and the things that things used, the way things used to be back then. And when I walk in Willamantic and I know what a street used to be like 100 years ago or I know where, what a building, who lived in a building, to me, I don't know, that's really meaningful. And you kind of close me. your eyes and you walk around yeah. and wow, they're there, right? Yeah. And I try to picture maybe the people who lived there and what their lives were like and, and kind of see that humanity that, that existed just like it does now 100 years ago. Yeah. And where's your family from, by the way? I'm from Puerto Rico. I moved here 2017, like um, many Puerto Ricans, right after the hurricane. And right. ever since then, um, this is my new home. Well, we're happy to have you here. That's great. Thank you. I'm so glad this program has tried to connect your personal interest with yeah. an academic path and maybe a work path altogether. That's yeah. the best of all worlds. We're all safe for that. 
So let me ask you this now, in terms of your own teaching in European. What's the connection in terms of digital history in Europe? Because it predates us, but some of the issues translate. Time is a blip in some ways. Mm -hmm. So how does it jump for you across the pond? Honestly, it is actually much more about the computer tools. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, sure. I, I, I like computers. I've been interested in computers for a long time. And I have tried to use computers when I'm looking at the early modern period. And so that's basically the Renaissance, you know, up through, say, Napoleon's period. And the problem is that we don't have a lot of data uh, back then. And so one of the reasons why I, I've been working on this in the way I have is because it actually, we have the census data. And so we have a list of 10,000 people that lived in Willimatic in 1910. There's nothing comparable to that in Europe in my period. Right. Uh, we have maps down to the building level that allow us to create a digital map and be able to connect it to other bits of information. We don't have anything like that that's in, say, circa 1700, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so really a lot of it is, and, and I live in Willimatic too, uh, so, you know, it, it does have, you know, a certain interest. And kind of going to kind of connecting history to the present, one of the things that, that when you start to, to, you know, look at the Digital Wyndham Project uh, and you see the names of a bunch of people mentioned in 1910, it's like, oh, Chafee, that sounds familiar. Hosmer, yeah, I, I'm familiar with that name. That's it. Uh, you know, and, you and, and so, you know, even though it was over 100 years ago at the same time, uh, you know, there still are a lot of the kind of echoes, if you will, of 1910, if we look at Willimantic and Hosmer was around before the Titanic. Yeah. That's <laughs> right. And they're still making great soda. I was not paid to say that. No payola <laughs> in this house at all. Uh, well, this is great. So what I want to do is give a website. If you want to track this, because people in town are curious, the, uh, like the Mill Museum has a whole program that's touching on this as well. Uh, so give us the website, and we'll have you back later in the year. Sure. So it's uh, easternct-digitalhistory.com. Well, that's too simple. I like that. It is. There you it's, go. it's simple enough. Well, thank you for your good work, and I, you know, I congratulate you on your good work in school. Thank you I wish very you a much. Great, you know, great year ahead, and we'll have you back. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to change guests live. We'll have them go ahead. Do you want to run a quick spot and we'll come yeah. back for a break? Okay, yeah. stay with us. We'll be right back in one minute. All righty, we're back for the last part of our show today. We're saving the best for last, I guess you would say. This is the Molten Lava Gallery. It's a kind of a pop-up community three or four times a year. They have a beautiful exhibit area where they bring people. There's music and art, and we have a current version coming up. Uh, this weekend, in fact, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's where we have Phoebe Godfrey here today, as well as Sasha Bajo. Thank you both for joining us Thank today. You, Thanks for having us. And for adding another experience, because the Willimantic art scene is growing a little bit here and mm -hmm. there. So tell us the idea of the gallery, and then tell us about your plans for this weekend. Okay, thank you. So uh, the idea for the gallery was to have a pop-up gallery, like you said. Um, we have a number of people who have art studio spaces in Molten Court. They do open studio in the, in the fall, and we thought, hmm, be nice to have a little gallery space. Uh, so we kind of made it as a pop-up, meaning it's, you know, it's not necessarily permanent, but for the moment it works and we did one in the at the end of last year I had you back uh, for that. yeah you had me for that and then the idea for this one uh, came out of a, a good friend of ours and um, we thought it's time to have a community conversation about mental health and so the name of the show is like trigger warning right and you know I'm sure pretty everybody's, relevant phrase, everybody's I heard say. that you know yeah. like okay trigger warning we're gonna talk about self-harming we're gonna talk about um, you know, trauma or addiction. And um, the idea is that 
11 artists, uh, of which Sasha is one of them, are putting their experiences, their pain, their trauma out for the public to share with them and be in space with them. And then uh, we're, we've designed it so we're not just leaving you there, like you go and look at this art and then you go home feeling even worse. Uh, <laughs> But we have a kind of healing hallway. So as you come out of the of the gallery space, right. uh, we're going to have an area where people can uh, meditate and write. We're going to have a place where people can light a candle or put the name of a lost loved one, uh, big pieces yeah. of paper to kind of process and connect with other people, conversations. And, and really that's sort of the theme of, you know, so many people in our culture suffer alone. Right, they, and and if only somebody had spoken to them, if especially somebody had COVID, reached out, especially with COVID, down, yeah. absolutely. Even more so, yeah. uh, and yeah. so the idea of this is just, you know, the artists being super courageous to start a conversation. Like, how do you start a conversation about cutting? How do you start a conversation about I've been locked in my room under a blanket for three weeks? Mm -hmm. uh, and and then artists allow us that space right where you know it's it's a little removed right and you can talk about it in a minute so i'm sure like it's on a painting or it's an installation or so you're not you know we're not doing full-blown therapy but we are allowing people to be like oh i feel that i've done that oh, yeah. i've you know, I know what that, that mm -hmm. painting just like, I've been there. yeah, I've, I've been, been there. Yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so um, the opening is Friday night, 5 to 8, uh, like I said, 31, 40, May 5th, 31, May 5th, yep, full moon, 31 Molten Court, Willimantic. Uh, there'll be some music and live music, you know, people sharing, sharing their, their words and uh, own, I think their own songs. Uh, then Saturday, uh, it, the gallery opens at 12. People can sign up. And starting at 1, we have open mic. And that'll be emceed by a spoken word poet called Devin Samuels, who's a former student of mine, mm. went to UConn, uh, started a poetic release, which was the spoken word uh, student club, went on and taught spoken word in Detroit for many years. Wow, uh, wonderful. Then worked in... Uh, Rhode Island, and now is part of yeah. uh, is teaching innovation at, at Harvard. So he's just he's done really amazingly, and you know I just had him come and speak at one of my classes to help students realize you can make a career out of the arts, mm -hmm. right? You know, because so yeah. many students are like oh you know I got to be an accountant, but I really want to be an artist. You know, it's like well there you know there are jobs in the arts, right? There are new ways. Um, yes. And then so that's Saturday, and then. Sunday, again, 12 to 4, uh, there will be a mask-making workshop uh, starting at 2, which means people will be making uh, masks on their own faces. Somebody will help them, and this is a process where you take the mask off, and then you kind of decorate it. You can burn it. You can bury oh, it. So, uh, so it's kind of like that ectoskeleton. You're, like, right. letting it go. Right. Uh, so I'm going to pass it to Sasha because we want to hear about her art as one of the artists thank that we're you. featuring. Yeah, thank you thank so you much. Thank you for being here, yeah. Thanks for having me. So I actually decided to join when Tina and Phoebe asked me about it because it really, just even saying, would you like to be in an art show about mental health struck some chord in me. And I was like, of course. I need to. This has to happen. It is a conversation that is very hush-hush. It's either glamorized or pushed yeah. under the rug. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And we need to have the real conversation mm -hmm. about what's really going on and the people that we know, who we care about, who we lose. And we thought everything was okay. We thought they were getting better. And it turns out they were living in utter chaos and turmoil and hell all alone while surrounded by us, you know? And so somehow we missed something. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to share some of my pieces, which kind of express certain components of that mental health journey, whether it's the trying to find ways to feel comfortable and feeling like you just can't, or being, you know, one of my pieces is about, you know, that pretty picture when really what's going on is the exact opposite on the inside. But because mm -hmm. that's what you present, nobody asks you any questions. Yeah, a lot of that is like the, you know, the Instagram. Like, here's me, yeah. happy looking, you know, uh, but behind the scenes, sure. like a, yeah. you know, a yeah, whole exactly. other story. You you sell that ten seconds of perfection when, in reality, the rest of your life is under the bed, under the blankets, not mm -hmm. coming out for days, barely drinking, barely eating, not wanting to live. So, yeah, yeah, well, you know, as I was hearing Phoebe describe the gallery and the layout, I got the idea that it really mimics the process itself, that you have to immerse yourself in it. You have to go somewhere mm -hmm. that you might not want to go, but yeah. you got to go. Yeah. And you got to stay. You just can't go and leave. You got to stay for a while. Mm -hmm. And then something happens that you take with you, and that's yeah. like that quiet room before you leave. You kind of walk us through the storm in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. What other media? You have acrylic for you. What other kind of art forms are people doing? So um, we have sculpture. Um, we have the the like the installation mm -hmm. that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, there's mixed media, you know, kind of resin and figurines. Uh, there's all kinds of things, but they're they're all people's process that you know they are being courageous to kind of yeah. put themselves out there and say you know mm -hmm. this is where I've been yeah. uh, and this is what it felt like uh, and you know it's it, like you said it's you know you have to go there mm -hmm. right it's sort of that dark night of the soul yeah. and you have to go into it but you don't have to go into it alone mm -hmm. right yeah. and and again in our culture we tend to uh, have shame with it and we tend mm -hmm. to think you know I'm failing and everybody else has got their stuff together uh, and and it's not like that right mm -hmm. the yeah. people you think are the most together may actually be the ones yeah who, the most vulnerable yeah so this is the space to allow yourself to be feel witness that mm -hmm. vulnerability that is really what connects us all anyway yeah yeah, sometimes if you witness, that opens your own door that you wouldn't have otherwise done because you were witness first, right? Mm -hmm. It triggers something. Yeah. A trigger warning. A trigger warning. <laughs> hey, there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the name of the whole show this weekend is Trigger Warning, Shadows and Reflections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Shadows and Reflections. And um, it's free, open to everybody. We are asking a $5 suggested donation because we're fundraising for art supplies for Natchalk Hospital. Uh, so if you've known anybody who's ever, you know, had to go to the hospital, you know, that might be, a, you know, a, a needed step. Yeah. And it's nice to have art supplies there, mm -hmm. you know, so you can process and uh, stay connected to your healthy spirit that's mm -hmm. often underneath yeah. Yeah. the kind of social trauma, right? Yeah. I think you can yeah. really attest to that, like, you know, the, the, yeah. so, the social part and then the, but there's that core that we all have that is always yeah. available. Mm. So. 
Mm. And you know, that's why I love this area for so many years. People like you all around doing things quietly in some spaces and it all adds up. They're all dots to connect. Yeah. And they're opportunities every day. So this this weekend, folks, uh, Friday, 5 to 8, Saturday, Sunday, 12 to 4 mm -hmm. around. And it's 31 Molten Court, Willimantic is the street address. And the Facebook page is uh, Molten Lava Gallery. Molten Lava Gallery, right? Okay, I hope so. Well, thank you for your work. Yeah, thank all you so time. much. And we'll look forward to having hope you back to see next you there. time as yeah. well. I'll stop by. Sounds yeah, good. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Hope see you to see there. the audience there, too. Okay. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Well, thank you very much, uh, Elsa Nunez, president of Eastern Connecticut State University, and thanks for the digital history people, and thank you to Matt Rupar, keeping all the engineering behind the scenes that you never see. Matthew keeps all the chaos at bay. So thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Take care.